In Jesus' prayer, he makes this such an important focus of his, of his ministry. It is for Jesus a great priority that we would be people who are grounded and solid in this message, who are shaped and molded and changed by the word of truth, and who come to a, a knowledge, a relationship with God through the word. Uh, it is what separates us from every other religion. We have a very unique message. Very unique message. A message of grace, a message of God's promise and His love. Uh, His word is powerful and effective. Jesus prays for this. He doesn't pray that people would get saved. He doesn't actually even pray that much for the effectiveness of His death that He's about to undergo. But He prays repeatedly for the message about his death. Okay? I really believe that Jesus, is, is, as he prays here, is saying, look, the greatest gift you have been given as my church, as my disciples and my followers, is this incredible revelation from God. This incredible message from God that explains his character, his nature, and his program in your life. Okay? It's our greatest treasure. And I, I really believe that um, it's, 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 it's why the Word has come under such attack from the beginning, from, you know, from Jesus' day onward. Uh, the Word, Scripture, has come under attack. And throughout history, and it's, 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 not, it's true equally today, that the Bible is constantly under attack. And every, every month, it seems like, somebody's writing a new book about how, how wrong the Bible is, Right? How it's just made up... And I love this. Like, here's a bunch of guys who are men who write books and I want you to believe what they say about the Bible because it's just a book and you shouldn't believe everything you read. Okay? Figure that one out. Okay, all these guys who think they're so smart, they're smarter than God. And they're convinced that they, because they write about this stuff, all kinds of nonsense. Okay, nonsense. That the Bible's not true, it's not credible... It's just made-believe stories. These disciples were just fishermen who didn't know how to write books. They had no business doing this. Uh, you know, these miracles couldn't possibly be true. It's all just made-up fairy tales and stories, right? More and more books coming out trying to discredit the reliability of the Word, okay? And these guys, they have doctors after their name and PhDs and PhD that and I don't know what all. And they just think they're so smart. And, and the crazy thing is, a lot of Christians are reading this stuff and believe it, okay? Now, let me just speak very directly and straightforward here. Uh, if you're going to read those guys, make sure you read both sides of the story. Okay, there are very good scholars out there defending the reliability of Scripture. It's boring reading, okay? I read this stuff, and it puts me to sleep, and I don't need a lot of help being put to sleep, actually. But... Uh, there are good arguments, and there are good, thorough, detailed explanations by very biblical scholars who would defend the reliability of Scripture. If you're going to read the goofballs on one side, make sure you read the goofballs on the other side, okay? Read both sides. But better than that, okay? Better than reading. If you want to read that stuff and get into those debates, it's good. And I, I would encourage you to do that. But even better, I want you to just think about something. Okay, if there is a God... And he was able to speak the universe into existence. Okay, he really is sovereign over everything. And he like spoke 
atoms and molecules and planets and universes into, into being. And he spoke us into being and he created us and he made us. And he made us with a plan and a purpose. And at the center of that purpose was the cross and redemption. Okay, if any of this is true at all, if any of it's true, then don't you think God is smart enough to write his own book? Right? Okay, I, these guys are so smart. They're so smart, they say, well, you know, God's not bright enough to figure this out. You know, he spoke the world into creation. He created gravity and all this wonderful stuff. But he's not real good at mail, right? And he doesn't know how to send us a message. Well, it's ridiculous, okay? It's just ridiculous. If God is God, if he is sovereign and powerful and mighty, he can clearly communicate everything to you he needs to. And you can count on his word. Okay, these guys who come up with this stuff are people who, their agenda is that they want to discredit the God who's the author of it all. They want to make their, well, and the problem is their God is not any smarter than they are. That's their problem. They worship and serve a God who's not as bright as they are. And so they can talk about the errors of Scripture. Don't buy that stuff. Uh, any high school students here this morning, don't let your professors in college, when you go out to college, Try to uh, delude your faith by telling you this is all just made-up stories and make-believe. It is truth, or it's nothing. Okay, you can't pick parts of it and say, "Well, I like this part. I like the whole Jesus, you know, being love and all that kind of stuff." But I'm just not really into the miracles. It's a package deal. It's either all true or it's all a lie. It is either absolutely infallible or it's garbage, and we should burn it. Okay, you can't pick and choose. If God is really the God of the universe, then believe me, He's capable of communicating clearly His Word and overseeing the writing of that, uh, that process. The Bible claims for itself that it is God-breathed in its entirety, that every part is exactly every word in its original manuscripts, we'll throw that in, uh, is God-breathed. All right, and we can count on it as reliable. Uh, Jesus didn't pray for his word knowing that it's only half true and half baked. Okay, uh, He prayed for this message which was truth. He didn't say, gee, I hope they get it right and I hope it's true. He said, I'm sending the Holy Spirit who will guide you into all truth, who will bring to remembrance everything I've taught you to guarantee that this message is absolutely true. And you can count on it. You can build your life on it. It is a message that will transform and shape you. It is a message that will save you and will bring you to know the true and living God. It was that important. Jesus isn't going to mess around with it being transmitted improperly. Okay. Thankfully, it didn't come through you know, email. Because <clears throat> I have problems sometimes with email. It came through the Holy Spirit through the direct intervention of God into the hearts and lives of men who recorded his, its words. You can count on it. Uh, it really is our greatest treasure, and we can trust it. Um, we can know it's true. Uh, the real question is, are we uh, making it a top priority in our life? Are we really making his word the greatest treasure in our life? Do we spend time daily pouring through it, trying to discern and find God and figure Him out? I hope so. 
back when I was uh, in a f former life, back in my home country, uh, I, I got a job as a track coach. And I loved to run, but I realized that coaching was kind of a different game, and I wanted to be a very good coach. So I got online, and I found every book on coaching track I could find. And I ordered all kinds of books. And uh, I didn't just order them and put them on my shelf so people could see all these books and go, see, I have books. I, I actually read them. And I poured through them. And I analyzed them. And I read them over and over again. And I, I tried to figure out how to apply these principles into my track program so I could be successful. So I wanted to do a good job. And actually, we were very successful. I was able to coach all kinds of state champions, even two state record holders. And I really believe a lot of it was partly because I had very talented kids, but also because I worked hard at, at learning, growing, understanding uh, what this was about so I could be successful. Okay, now if I would go to all that trouble to make two-way high school track athletes, how much more important should I be studying God's Word in order to mentor and disciple and to grow people who will live through all eternity? to provide fruit and successfulness for eternal beings grounded in God's Word. Boy, I hope, I hope and pray. You know, Jesus prayed. Uh, you know, I've given them this message. I pray that it wouldn't collect dust on the shelves. That's what Jesus is praying here. I pray that it would be living and active, a continual part of these disciples' lives, building my truth into them. Jesus prays for that. Uh, second priority he prays for, and we're just going to touch on this real briefly. He prays about their place in the world. And Jesus is leaving, and he makes it clear that they are not. Uh, he says, uh, let me just breeze through several verses. In verse 11, he says, Now I'm departing from the world, but they're staying, and I'm coming to the Father. Uh, Father, protect them by the power of your name so they will be united as we are. Protect them in this world. The world hates them because they do not belong to the world just as I don't belong. An important one in verse 15, he says, I'm not praying, asking that you take them out of the world. Okay, this is kind of bad news for us. Jesus did not pray that we would be rescued from all our problems and difficulties. Okay, but he does pray that we would be kept safe from the evil one. So in the midst of this troubled world, we have to remain, but he'll be there to give us strength. They don't belong to this world any more than I do. Just as you sent me into the world, so I am sending them into the world. Uh, Jesus says, prays, and he, a priority for him is that we uh, are going to be part of this world that we don't belong to. He says, you've been called out of the world, and now those who are my disciples live differently than those who are in the world. He says, you don't belong here anymore. Uh, you are all oddballs in the world's eyes. Isn't that great? Okay, we can get T-shirts, you know. Actually, most of us don't need T-shirts. The world already knows. Uh, we don't fit here anymore because we don't have the same values and priorities the world does. And on top of that, it says that the world hates you. Well, that's kind of encouraging, right? Uh, Jesus prays that we would be able to survive this, living in this hostile environment. He prays with great concern for our safety that God would keep us safe in this world. Not that he would rescue us from its problems, but that God would keep and protect us. That, uh, And I think here he's speaking of protecting us, not in terms of our physical bodies, or of abuse, or of hardship, or persecution, 
I think what he's asking is that God would protect our faith. That in the midst of all the things the world throws out, even killing us as believers, that God would protect our faith in him and his word. That's what God's protecting. So next time you have difficulties and God doesn't rescue you like you want, remember what he's promised to do is to keep your faith intact. So keep your faith intact. And know that this is what God called us to. Living in a world where we don't belong. Uh, And then finally he says, uh, the reason we live in this world as aliens, as strangers, as people who don't belong, is that you have a mission here. We as his disciples have a mission in this world. He says in verse 18, just as you sent me into the world, in the same way I am sending them into the world. Every believer in Christ has been sent on a mission by Jesus to do what he did. Well, what did Jesus do? He says, I gave myself as a holy sacrifice for them so they can be made holy by your truth. Uh, Those are the very next words. I sent them just as you sent me. I died to bring the message of truth so the world could be saved. What does that tell us about how Jesus is sending us? Well, he's sending us that our life would be sacrificed to bring the message of truth to the world. Now, thankfully, most of us, I would guess probably all of us, will not have to die on a cross uh, as Jesus did. And certainly, there are things Jesus did that we cannot. Uh, His death, his sacrifice was unique. But nonetheless, Jesus has sent us with the same mission of bringing this message of, the, of life, the message of the good news of his death and resurrection. And we do, in a sense, sacrifice our lives to do that. We give up our own agendas and goals and priorities. Uh, honestly, I can think of other things I would rather do with my life than be a preacher. I can think of a lot of things, actually, that just sound a whole lot more fun uh, in, in my flesh. Uh, certainly I can think of things that would be a lot easier. Surfing, skiing, I don't know, just hiking through the woods. I can think of a lot of things. Uh, it's, it's a sacrifice to live so far away from our family and our children, our grandkids and our parents. Uh, there are sacrifices we make to be sent into this world. All of us. And Jesus says, you make that sacrifice, but you make it for a purpose. That is to fulfill my mission of bringing my truth, this message, into the world. Finally, third priority. And I want to really spend some time on this one because this is an important priority. Uh, We've been sent on a mission into the world. And Jesus really talks about what this mission is. We've been sent to bring the message. We are, like him, message bearers bringing this word. And then he goes on in verse 20, he says, I am praying not only for these disciples, but all who will ever believe in me through their message. So we get a little glimmer of hope here that as we proclaim this message, it will produce life in other, in other people. All right? We do have the privilege and opportunity of bringing a message that is life-changing and will, will cause some in the world to be drawn out of the world into new life in Christ. Uh, Isn't that cool? We get to be lifeguards. We get to be lifesavers. Not by our own work, but through the work of God. But we're we're agents of that life-saving power. Uh, Have any of you had a 
part in that process? Have any of you been a part of bringing somebody to new life in Christ? Anybody? Okay, some of you got to work on this. Actually, I think all of you have been a part of that more than you may realize. Maybe you haven't prayed this prayer of salvation with somebody, but I'll bet your life has made an impact in ways you don't know. Your life has planted seeds in ways that you don't know. You've been uh, a cup of cold water for a lost person. It's been, a, been God's mercy and grace to that person. And you don't know how many lives you have touched. You don't know how many people you've been a part of bringing them to life in Christ as you've lived out this message. And he says that it will be effective. And there will be lots of others who will come to faith through that message. But then he goes on, he says, I pray that they will all be one, just as you and I are one, as you are in me, Father, and I am in you. And may they be in us so that through their oneness, the world will believe that you sent me. Uh, I love these two verses. Actually, three verses. 20 through 20, 21 through 23. Jesus spells out how we will be effective in this mission. Now let me ask another question. Um, we know that this message is what will save people. Okay, If we're going to ever be Bringing people to Christ, at some point we do have to proclaim the message of truth, the good news about Jesus Christ, who He is, that He came from God, that He died for sin, that He rose again. Okay? At some point you've got to tell people that. We tell it verbally through our words, we tell it through our testimonies, we bear witness of what God's done in our life, and we tell it by our life. But here's the catch. The message in and of itself is not enough. Here's proof. How many of you have shared that message one way or another and had it just flat out rejected? Okay? I would venture to say anybody who's shared that message more than once, or maybe even just once, has had it rejected. Right? The message is not that compelling by itself, interestingly enough. Otherwise, you know, we'd be out telling everybody and they'd just all be getting saved and we'd have 10,000 people in our church this morning, which would be really cool, but uh, that's not how it works. Far more often I've, I've told that message and I've said, isn't that cool? Isn't that amazing what God's done for you? And people go, are you serious? <laughs> what are you talking about? And you get these great comebacks like, you know, if God's so good, well, you know, why are there earthquakes and death and dying and evil and all that kind of stuff? People don't readily accept the message, if you hadn't noticed. <laughs> okay? Um, it's not a bestseller. Well, you know, people, you know, the Bible actually is a bestseller. But the message of Jesus saving people is not a bestseller. Okay? People aren't flocking to that message. So Jesus poses the most critical, crucial part of our, of our mission. We've got to give the message, but we have to give it in a way that is compelling. We have to present the message in a way that will persuade them to believe. So what he prays, he says, Lord Jesus, I pray that my disciples would be super smart, intelligent people, they would know how to argue people into the kingdom. To be able to construct well-reasoned, logical arguments. Right? Is that what he prays? Maybe your translation is different. <laughs> no, he prays. He prays, Lord Jesus, I pray. Uh, Jesus prays, Father, I pray that they would have massive scientific evidence to support you know, the creation of the world and the cross. And I just pray that you would give them all kinds of you know, evidence that demands a verdict, right? 
Is that what he prays? No, that's not what he prays either. Maybe he prays this. Father, I pray that they would be able to do such stunning and incredible miracles that it would just blow people away and they would all believe my message. Is that what he prays? It's not what he prays. Interestingly enough, that's not what he prays. And yet it's interesting. You go, on, you go online and you search apologetics. Apologetics is defending our message. Apologetics is, means why you should believe what we're telling you. You look at all the books and that's what they're all about. This scientific evidence, that scientific evidence, this great argument, you know, evidence that demands a verdict. Now, I'm not saying that those things are bad, that we shouldn't be thinking people, that we shouldn't be able to give defense for some of these things. I think it's good and important. But that's not what Jesus prays for. And the reality is that people do not come, I, I know this from firsthand experience, people don't come to Christ because you can prove to them you're smarter than they are. Okay? <laughs> All, all it does is make him mad and think you're just a jerk, okay? And from my own personal experience, I have been a jerk. And it doesn't bring people to Christ, okay? Uh, you know, just because you can argue well doesn't mean people are going to go, wow, you're so smart, I think I'm going to follow you. There's nothing compelling in that. Jesus prays. He says, this is how the world will believe that I came from the Father. This is how they'll know that Jesus was sent from God the Father to this world in His truth by my church being one. By my disciples and my followers living in such incredible unity that they display the same unity that I have with the Father. That will change the world. That will convince them of the truth. Just think about those words. Jesus prays that we would exhibit... In fact, in verse 20, let me read another one. He says that. He says the same thing over again in verse 23. He says, I in them and you in me, may they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. That's our greatest apologetic. Our greatest defense for our faith is how we live together in Christian community. Uh, Jesus says they will be convinced of the truth when they see the church so living in Christian community, exhibiting such incredible love uh, toward one another and such incredible oneness of purpose and mind and focus that it will prove to them that this is not of this world. And think about it. Where in the world do you see this kind of oneness and and like-mindedness and community lived out? Well, nowhere. You know, what country are people so one that they don't even have to have have elections because they just know who their president is or their leader, right? It's not Thailand. How many prime ministers in the last year? We're on number three, number four, five. We're number five. Okay, I think we're missing some unity there. It's certainly not, uh, you know, a number of other countries I can mention and name. Uh, Not my home country where we go to war every time there's an election. And uh, presidents are, are elected by, you know, very small margins because people do not think alike. They are not one. Okay, I love it. That in democratic societies, majority means 51%. Okay, that means pretty much you're split down the middle and, you know, you're just barely one side over the other. Okay, okay that's not unity. Unity is when people are 100% together on the same page. When does that ever happen in this world? 
It doesn't. And yet the world longs for this. The world longs to find a place where there is such community, not because of how good people are, but because they just belong in an atmosphere of grace. The world longs for this. They make TV shows up about this, okay? Friends, okay? Friends, they make up... The thing is, this is the only, this is the only way it happens is if it's scripted, <laughs> right? And, uh, you know, it lasts for 30 minutes long, and in the end, everybody's happy. Sometimes you can stretch out to a two-hour movie with a happy ending, right? It doesn't happen in real life. But it ought to happen in the church. You know, the movie industry makes billions of dollars selling this very thing, that there is a happy place where you can belong. You know, there's a, there's a place where everybody knows your name. It cheers that cheers thing, right? Uh, and yet, they long for it, but there's only one place where it can be found, where it ought to be found, and that is in the community of believers, in the church, in the fellowship of those disciples who follow him. We ought to be so characterized by community and brotherhood and fellowship and communion and love together that the world is blown away by our relationship together. And through that, they go, there's just something weird about those people, but it's something definitely good. It's something divine. It's something that has the mark of God's character upon it. And they are compelled and drawn to our message because they see us living it out day by day. Um, That's what it is. In fact, Jesus describes it in terms of his unity with the Father. Uh, this oneness he possesses with the Father. Now let me talk a little bit about what unity is not. Uh, there's, there's been a lot of talk, especially in the last about 100 years, uh, with the whole ecumenical movement, this idea that all the churches ought to be coming together and we ought to have unity. And we ought to have like this one big kind of group hug. We all come together. We all are just real happy together. We all love each other, even though uh, really we hate each other, right? Uh, we just pretend. Well, that's really not what Jesus is talking about here. Okay, it's not just tolerating each other. Okay, it's like, well, I know that you don't believe anything I believe, but we'll just agree to disagree. Okay, that's not biblical unity. Biblical unity is not coming to a place where we agree to disagree. In fact, the best definition for biblical unity comes from Philippians chapter 2, where Paul writes this. Paul says, make, make me truly happy. Or maybe he says it this way, please make my day. By agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, and working together with one mind and purpose. Literally, it says, he says, be, be like-minded. Be of the same mind. Okay, True unity means that you have the same thoughts the same purpose, the same focus and direction. That is biblical unity. Okay, it is not a bunch of churches come together who, do not, who don't at all have the same mind. We just all agree to disagree and have a big group hug and feel warm and fuzzy and sing Kumbaya. Right? Yeah, that is not unity. Uh, first of all, it's important to understand the, 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 the focus here. Jesus is not saying... You need to just all come together and be happy around the campfire for the sake of being happy around the campfire. The context of this is that you will be successful in your mission. 
The reason we're to be one is not for the sake of unity, but for the sake of bringing people to Christ, of displaying and demonstrating the oneness of Jesus with the oneness of the Father and accomplishing His purpose and will and work on earth. That's why you should be one, to demonstrate God's plan. So it requires being like-minded. It requires having the same heart and mind together. Well, does that mean there can't be differences? Well, there are differences. Uh, Paul describes it as being a body. Many parts, each part has its own focus and gifts and talent and ability. But all of those parts come together to focus on one thing. I'm really thankful that my body, for the most part, lives in unity with itself. I don't always live in unity with many others, but I always pretty much live with, in unity with myself. I'm very thankful for that because it would be very hard to do my job if my feet kept wanting to like go off one direction and my arms were like pulling the other direction and my mouth was trying to preach and my eyes were looking all around at other things. And, you know, just imagine if our bodies couldn't like, pull it together, right? Maybe you've had days like that <laughs> where you couldn't quite pull it all together. But thankfully, for the most part, all these different parts kind of are navigated together for one thing whatever it is we happen to be doing at the moment. And, uh, and life works that way. Well, the same thing should be true in the body. Sure, we're all different. Sure, we all have different perspectives and insights, gifts, abilities, focus. But all of that should come together with amazing oneness and unity of purpose. Well, how in the world do you do that? How in the world do you all come to all of us, all the church globally, come to have one mind? Well, there's a couple options in this. The first one would be to decide whose mind is right and all decide we're going to agree with him. Okay? So that would, of course, be the pastor. I'm right and you're not. And so you just agree with me and we'll all be happy, right? Okay, nobody's buying this. Man, I'm disappointed. No, no, that's not it. Uh, that's not it. How are we going to all have the same mind? Well, it's easy. If we all have the mind of Christ. If we all have together the heart and mind of Christ, we will have unity. We will have one heart and mind. We will think alike. So how do you do that? Well, that's why Jesus made such a big deal about His Word. The way that we can come together and have one heart and one mind in Christ is if we are all equally pouring ourselves into His Word and allowing it to teach and mentor and develop us. To the extent that we as His children invest ourselves in His Word and study it and know it and come to discover God's truth in it and hear His Holy Spirit speak to us through it, to that extent, we will be one. We don't achieve oneness by trying to get along. It doesn't work. And I've seen this happen over and over again where church groups, churches, denominations, church, citywide church groups try to come together, have a big happy worship service, and they're all gonna, we're all going to have unity because we're all in the same room, Right? And we're all singing a song together, so we're all going to be unified. It doesn't work, okay? It starts because we all have the same mind. And we get that mind not by coming together, unless we're coming together around God's Word. Or being taught and instructed and fed in His Word. Or we are on our own privately in the Word. That's how we come to a place of unity, when we have been discipled and mentored through His Word. That's why, for our part, it's important that we are discipling and mentoring those we bring to Christ. That we are teaching Him the whole counsel of God, God's heart and mind. It's why on Sunday mornings we spend so much time preaching. 
And all the time I have people say, you know, why don't we just skip the whole preaching part and have worship? It's more fun. Well, it is more fun. I'll give you that, okay? There's a lot of things more fun than listening to a sermon. Like I said, it's not that much fun as a preacher. I could, I'd rather be skiing today. I can't do that here, but if I could, it would be great. But it is vitally important to our mission. God's Word is vitally important. Uh, it would be so much easier to preach on a lot of different subjects besides God's Word. It could be a lot more entertaining. And I, I used to give talks and teach in a lot of secular settings. Uh, you know, you can be a lot funnier when you're just talking about goofy things. Uh, a lot more entertaining. But that's not what we're called to. We are called to be shaped into one heart and mind in Christ where we together come to value and love the same things. Where we together come to so know the heart and mind of God that we don't have to think about what God's will is. We know it. And we know it together. That if we're all coming to this place where we know and are discerning God's will and understanding His purpose, His work, we will work together in incredible harmony. In the midst of this verse, uh, Jesus says a really strange thing. These two parallel verses about being one, about being one as the Father and the Son are one so that the world would know, so that the world would believe. Then in the midst of that, he sandwiches this, in the midst of those two verses, this, this, this verse, verse 22. He says, I have given them the glory you gave me so they may be one as we are one. That's just a weird verse. I don't know about you, but to me that just seems odd. Jesus says, I have given you my glory. And that by means of that, you will achieve oneness. What in the world does that mean? Well, you could read 25 different commentaries and get 25 different answers. The commentators are real confused by this verse, and they all admit that. So I will do the same. I'm real confused by this verse. Uh, And uh, it could mean a lot of things and probably does. But let me tell you my two top picks, okay? One is uh, from a commentary. One I just made up, so I will give you a word of caution, okay? First one that likely is, is very much true. Jesus started off this prayer. He said, Father, glorify me. And he really was referring to the cross. He's saying, as I go to the cross, may this event of redemption, may it glorify the Son, and through that may the Son bring glory to the Father. Uh, Jesus, throughout the Gospels, made it clear that his glory was the cross. And so it's very true that Jesus is saying, look, through what I've done on the cross, through my glory of the cross, through the glory of my shed blood, uh, you are made one. I've given to you this great gift of my own life poured out, my blood shed for you. It is my glory, and I, I confer it to you as a gift that brings salvation. And certainly, we are made one through the blood of Christ. Without his shed blood, without the reconciliation that he made, we can't be one. We would be absolute enemies. We can only be one as we're reconciled through the blood of Christ. So I believe that is certainly part of what Jesus meant. But I think there's something else that's a good possibility. Um, If you look down a little bit farther, Jesus specifically says that that through our oneness, the world will know that you sent me 
and that you love them as much as you love me. You see, our oneness ought to convey two powerful messages. The first, that Jesus truly was sent from God to redeem the world. Secondly, that this God who did this deeply loves the Son and loves equally all of his followers. That they ought to see demonstrated, as we love each other, they ought to see demonstrated God's love for his church, for his people. Uh, A little down farther, uh, Jesus says this, um, Father, I want those... Uh, these whom you've given me to be with me where I am, uh, going to be taking us to heaven, then they can see all the glory you gave me since you loved me even before the world began. It's a strange verse. Uh, I pray that, that they would be with me so that they can see all the glory, the full display of glory that you have given me. And then he says, since you loved me, from before the world began. I really believe that if you were to shine God's glory in its purest, simplest being, if you were to strip down everything and focus on just the core essence of what God's glory is, it would be this. It would be God the Father's love for the Son. Because Jesus, several times in the Gospel of John, references God's glory to that glory that existed before the world began. What does that mean? Well, oftentimes we think of God's glory as what? Majesty, splendor, this radiant beauty that is displayed for all to see. And that's true that that is God's glory. And we get to heaven, we're going to get to see this display of God's awesome wonder. But think about this. Before there was any of us, before there were angels or spirits, before there was any created thing, at some point beyond which, you know, my brain starts blowing fuses, when there was nothing, when there was nothing except for just God. God in the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Okay, who was he shining all this glory for? What well, didn't make any sense. Uh, there was nobody to display it to. But was there glory? Well, absolutely. Well, what was the glory? Well, I believe it was God loving himself. It was God so delighting and enjoying himself. God the Father delighting and thrilling at the being of his Son and loving each other to an extent we can't even begin to imagine. And Jesus says, I can't wait for the day when my church comes and they come to heaven and they see this glory which stripped down is simply this amazing love that the Father has for me and that I have for the Father. This love that existed before the world began and before anything created, it was all that really mattered. God's pure, incredible, unending, unfailing, perfect love. And Jesus says that, you know, that is my glory. That ultimately is the glory that I revel in. And Think about that. Jesus says, I have given you this glory. I have given to you the same glory that the Father gave me so that you can be one as I am one. In other words, God wants so much to pour out His love and goodness in our life for us to sense and know and experience His love 
that existed before the world began, that it overflows out of us and it becomes the thing that makes us one. Uh, you know, it's easier to be one with somebody you like. It's really easy to be that way with somebody you love deeply, especially if you know they love you deeply. And that becomes the glue that binds us and holds us together. Now, of course, we do live in a world where this, this sounds great, but it's not always that way. The reality is that sometimes we love people a lot, and they're mean to us, even if they're Christians. Um, sometimes we're not very nice to each other. Uh, sometimes we don't do this oneness thing very well, and we're still supposed to be loving. But that should grow and, and increase among us to the point that it characterizes our total existence as his children. And as it does so, Jesus says, the world will come to believe. Um, I really believe that this is, this really is our most important work. And I know that everybody here is involved in a very important work. A teaching, a sharing Christ, doing community development, being a parent, being a mom, being a dad, being a student, being a teacher. And those are all great things and good things. But in all of those things, the most important thing we can do is to be displaying oneness in Christ. Uh, it should be true in our homes. That's why it's so vitally important that our homes, our marriages, our families, are places where there is a flow of God's love and grace. Because it's a witness to the world. It is a testimony to the world. Uh, I'll tell you what, any time a Christian, but especially any time a pastor's family falls apart and there's divorce and there's affairs and there's problems, oh, the whole world knows it. The whole world knows it. Everybody, I, that news gets out really quick, doesn't it? Uh, we got to make sure that we are bearing witness to the work of Christ in our homes, in our workplaces. Whatever work it is you do, the most important work you do is exhibiting oneness within that team. That you together are one as a team. You know, I'll ask you to raise your hands, but how many of the teams you work on really are the pure picture of oneness? Right? Okay, I'm taking by the laughs. That means not always. Okay, that ought to be our work. It's our, it's our most important work because that is how the world will believe. If we're working, working, working to get the message out, but we're doing it with a team that's falling apart, that's divided and fighting and arguing, we make that message very ineffective. Okay, the effectiveness of that message comes because we are one. We're loving each other. We have one heart and one mind in Christ. Um, you can go down the list. Our church, our fellowship here ought to be a place where we have unity, where we love each other, where we support and encourage each other. It is a witness to the world. Let's pray. Father, we know that, uh, and we, we thank you, that Jesus prayed these words with a, a true burden and passion that they would be fulfilled. These were not idle, empty prayers made just to sound good. Jesus was serious about these prayers. And it really spells out the purpose and mission 
that we are to take, the path we are to follow as, as his followers, as his disciples. Father, I pray that we would that we would have your heart in mind. Or that we would come to have a life that has your priority about it. Uh, that we would put aside the things that are our own priority. would have a life that's characterized by the things that matter most to you. Your truth, your message, your word, your mission to bring lost people to salvation. And your heart that your church your bride would be one, one body under the headship of Christ, working and laboring together for one purpose, to bring glory to your name and to reveal your character through our relationships together as a family. Lord God, do that work in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.